You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The projectionist has smicha. I'm here with Yitzchak Kolokowski, and I think Chava is also here tonight. She had such a fun time last week as we <laughs> talked about talked about Mike Lee and Cinema Verite. Um, tonight, Yitzchak, I'm going to let you start because I know you're fresh off um, a uh, an experience which for you was electrifying, right? <laughs> All right. Well, we we went Monday Shabbos. There's a little uh, movie theater about an hour from where we live, and the, the name of the town is Rosendale, New York. For the past few months, one one Monday Shabbos a month, uh, monster movies, which of course is our that's your love language. Yeah, that's our our our. Uh, Happy place. This month, they showed from 1951, The Thing from Another World. And I'd seen this movie first when I was a a young kid, you know, probably seven or eight years old. And it was on AMC. Uh, They would have, they would show the, back when AMC still showed old movies instead of uh, new TV shows, they would show you know once or twice a week some kind of monster movie and they would be hosted by bob dorian and i always enjoyed the the hosting the host segments and sometimes he'd be at some movie palace and talk about the history of all those movies and so forth and the preservation of the film on the nitrate stock and so forth and uh, i remember taping this and keeping the tape of of the thing the Thing from Another World is the full title. Well, everyone just calls it The Thing. Uh, and the subsequent remakes all just call it The Thing. And uh, I'd never seen any of the remakes. I know those were very popular, although at the time uh, they weren't. But the, the first remake certainly... Yes, John I, Carpenter's yeah. version. I mean, John Carpenter was an auteur. He's, most of what he did, definitely, uh, he pushed horror into a, a whole different realm. On the phone, Queen. I think Carpenter thought Yitzchak that he now had the special effects expertise to really scare you, and he actually changed the nature of the monster. But let's talk about the original. What Carpenter, what Carpenter did was he followed the original book, right? In the original book, this monster is sort of a shapeshifter that can somehow take on the 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 aspects of whoever approaches it. But which which wasn't really able to be done convincingly uh, in 1951, uh, you know what, what they were able to do there. Um, you know, Yitzchok, you you take a look at the original uh, movie poster for the thing. It creeps, it crawls, it strikes without warning. Now, the, the like all movie posters, that's not really what this thing is about, right? The thing is about it's. <laughs> That's what you know. Now watching this movie, I guess I guess I'm technically an adult. Uh, <laughs> it it's I it Nearly strikes 40. me. Yeah, yeah. I, I just turned thirty nine. Um, it strikes me as a totally different movie because when I was watching it as a seven year old, eight year old, it was oh I just want to see the monster, you know, and like when are we going to get to see the monster? And then you don't really see the monster, you know, even the the one scene at the end where you you do see him, it's it's pretty dark there's a lot of smoke and a lot of and it's like well you know what's the point of this movie you know all right so they yeah so let's uh, let's not so let's not bury the lead for a second the monster 
is appearing in an Arctic, uh, near an Arctic base where the group of scientists who are, who are experimenting there or doing research there have discovered that an aircraft, a spacecraft has landed seemingly from another world. And in that frozen environment, right, there is contained there the pilot or whoever it was, the passenger on the spacecraft, that's the thing from another world, right? right. And and they bring these. They have to go out and retrieve this thing, um, and 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 the drama is really what's going on between uh, these actors and actresses who are part of this uh, ice station zebra that's out there, right? Right. And and like I said, you know, as an adult, I'm appreciating that drama. The 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 you know, the, the acting, the, the storytelling much more than, than I could have appreciated as a child. You know, I, I see it's and it's, it's actually, there's a lot of really adult themes that are going on there, um, you know, that are kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, rather shocking, you know, for the time. But you hear it was Howard Hawks, who I don't think made any other monster movies or horror movies in, in his whole repertoire. I right. mean, one, technically the producer, right? Technically the producer. He, was, he was the producer of this film, but he had directed many other films. And probably my favorite of his filmography was was His Girl Friday. Yeah, I love it. And there, there, are, there are some aspects of His Girl Friday, I think, you know, the kind of the, the, the repartee between the, the male lead and the female lead, the way they're talking. Again, they're talking over each other. And that's one thing. Hawks. Really fast. Yeah. Like, yeah. This one, I don't. A lot of alliteration. And there's also a lot of jokes. There's a lot of in jokes, even references to Hawks' other films. There's one part where one of the soldiers said, Oh, I saw Gary Cooper do this in, in uh, Sergeant Preston. And <laughs> that was uh, one of one of Hawks' films. And so in, in this movie. And, uh, and, Hawks... part, and part of the, the conversation that's going on is to give you a sense that this is. These are real people that are out there and they're dealing with a what could be a life or death situation. And I think part of the argument that's going on there is reflected in another classic, incredible science fiction film, which of course is Ridley Scott's Alien, which is, oh, we can't, we need to, we need to find this thing. We need to have this thing. We need to bring it in, right? We're not gonna, right? We need it for. For what? For what purpose? For scientific experimentation to maybe use as a weapon? Who knows? What can we harness? Even though clearly this is dangerous to us, right? So you do have a similar idea here. Yeah, about... that, yeah you have the, well, probably my favorite character in the movie is the scientist character who, you know, is probably the least realistic looking person there, meaning everybody else just looks like a regular person. There's nothing, you know, so special about the look of, uh, you know, they look all pretty unassuming, normal, just regular people. And then you have this scientist who, he looks like a professor, he looks like a scientist, you know, he has, he has a very stylized beard and the way he dresses and everything. He presents himself, the way he talks, the way he, he, you know, he's the one who's, you know, probably the hammiest, you know, character there is different than than anybody else who are just, you know, normal people living their lives, you know, soldiers and, and workers and the secretary and this and that. 
and so it's uh, you know that uh, but somehow that character who's the least realistic somehow he really i i, I find the resonance in him because he's he's a covers that this alien and this was part of uh charles letterer and maybe ben hecht's invention isn't like uh or isn't doesn't is not as carbon-based or organic or like a mammal but he's actually some sort of vegetable life and and because of that um it's so fascinating to the doctor dr carrington that's why he, he wants to keep it alive right yeah, um, and, and 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 you know it's it it go it, it touches on what would later be touched on in another movie about plant life emulating human life was invasion of the body snatchers alien plant life right. where again it, it, it's it's because he doesn't have the same animal drives that that humans have being part of the animal kingdom that uh, you know attracts him that he he said you know this being must be pure intellect without any emotion. And so, therefore, it's it's something that it it can teach mankind, you know, how to be uh, sublime, uh, you know. And and but really, it's it's not sublime. It's just the opposite. It's it's quite uh, you know. It, and like Alien, um, again, it, it it lives to absorb. It lives to right because. This is the way it lives is by killing everyone, right? That's what it's about. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's sort of it's just living off the blood, you know. Right, it, right. It needs it needs to kill them for somehow its blood gets into its vegetable system. We we talked off pod Yitzchak that unlike most monster flicks, where who knows who was underneath all that, um, you know, rubber stuff, <laughs> this film was might have been one of the first films that featured uh, that television mainstay who that I remember from my youth as the symbol of nobility and goodness, uh, Marshall Dillon himself, James Arness. Right. Who, because of how big he was, he was, I think the reason why they used him is because he was just a tall, muscular person that I guess right. the costume it worked well with him. Yeah, it was it was it was makeup. It wasn't any kind of. Uh, I mean, obviously it's still a costume, but I'm saying it wasn't like, you know. And 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 I think the fact that he receives a credit in the movie is quite interesting because it wasn't traditional to credit any monsters. You know, I know um, uh, Rico Browning told us, you know, he had to pay admission to go see himself play the creature from the Black Lagoon, and when he played the monster a second and third time, he begged them to give him a credit and they said no we don't credit monsters and costumes like that here it's more similar to something like uh, the frankenstein monster where it's more makeup than than a rubber suit and i guess that's the the nafkamina you know that you know someone if they're in a a gorilla suit or a, or a creature suit they don't deserve a credit but if they're if their own actual you know facial features and so forth are are being you know transformed through makeup like a Frankenstein or a, or a werewolf? I guess those types of monsters did get credit. I, I guess that's the way it must have worked at that time in the. Well, in, in, whatever this seems to be getting from from there, Arnes went on uh, to bigger and better things. If it's a very interesting thing for our listeners, perhaps. Uh, they could probably find it on YouTube, the very first episode of Gunsmoke, which of course was a very famous radio serial uh, that had the voice of William Conrad, who didn't look anything like James Arness. William Conrad 
was the fellow with the incredible deep baritone voice. Of course, he was also on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Um, uh, and he was later, of course, the fat detective of canon. You remember in the 70s when there was a craze of all in television of all different types of weird detectives. Uh, James Franciscus as the, the blind, the long street. Buddy Epson as the old Barnaby Jones. And William Can- William Conrad as the fat canon. <laughs> so Conrad was the voice on the radio. But when they decided to turn it into a television series, which became one of the longest running television series of all time, John Wayne introduced the first episode on TV. And he says, I want to tell you that here's the star, James Arness. And of course, John Wayne was about 6'3", and James Arness was at a good four inches on John Wayne. He said, he's bigger than me. (laughs) And you can see when James Arness steps in there, the, the, the height and the power of who he was. Clearly in the thing, like he said, all he had to do was basically run around and attack people. Um, I mean, again, you don't you don't see him very much. He comes behind a, 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 a you know, you see him. They open the door and he grabs and, and you see him. He attacks some dogs. The dogs rip off his arm and the arm grows back. He, he they set him on fire. And he jumps out the window. And apparently that was a stunt double. Well, he was rescued. They sat on. They, yeah. <laughs> and then in the end, finally, you know, he walks down this hallway and, and you're able to see something more and they they zap him with electricity and that's how they finally kill him off and when they do that uh because they realize it's it's a a vegetable and so you cook a vegetable uh you know they uh, he shrinks down so actually what they did was and there are pictures of james arness next to this little person they had a little person uh in the same type of makeup uh, you know, after, you know, representing this, uh, you know, you don't see the shrink. It's, it, you know, it cuts away and cuts back. And by the time it cuts back, it's shrunken down. And you see this little person, uh, you know, taking the form. Arnes hated this movie. He really resented the fact that the monster was a, was some kind of a carrot, even though it didn't look as much like a carrot, like uh, it conquered the world. That really actually looked like shape of a carrot. This looked more like a Frankenstein monster, but he felt that it was beneath his dignity and he would, he always would refuse to talk about this movie when he was asked in interviews. Uh, you know, he did another monster movie uh, three years later was them where yeah. he was a police officer, another, another great, uh, you know, more highbrow, you know, not, not a B movie, you know, all both of these are, are highbrow movies, but uh, you know, like you said, Charles Letterer writing and most likely yeah, and, and, Dimitri, Dimitri Tomkin score. I mean, you have a lot of um, prestigious things in this film um, that I don't think most people realize. Um, and that, and that's, you know, also seeing it on a big screen. It wasn't a huge screen. It was a smaller theater, but we sat right up front and seeing it. It was different than even I'd seen it as an adult on a DVD. And it's, it's quite a different experience to be sitting in a theater watching this and and following the story more carefully you know not looking at your phone and this and that and no you're right it's a, it's 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 a, it's an argument for the old way of watching films which you know is going to become rarer and rarer especially whether there's covid out there or not people enjoy uh, and the the gigantic screens they have at home especially when they can stop the film and rewind it like geeks like us yeah. <laughs> end I up mean, doing quite a bit 
I, 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 I saw on Facebook where they where I learned about this and people were discussing about this uh, showing one person's like well why why should I go out and go to the movie theater and watch this when I just bought the movie at, on DVD at Walmart and what and I answered I said well I I went and this was a uh, this was was an experience I I have it on DVD and it's it's a much different experience sitting uh, well, in the theater with with close to 100 other people and that was something that amazed me you know, because, you know, I've gone out to theaters where it's been empty. You know, I, I know there was a, a showing of King Kong just as the all the pandemic lockdowns were starting just before everything shut down. I saw King Kong on the big screen and the theater was empty. And I was, this is that's my favorite movie. And here another RKO movie. And here we see uh, I was I was just amazed to see all different ages. There were teenagers there, there were, you know, older people, other children. I wasn't the only one who who brought my kids out to see <laughs> to yeah. see this, and it was really quite a you know. Even though I didn't really, talk I, I think this really me. this really takes us gets up to a whole other topic about how movie watching has changed and what films meant for a community before television i think we've talked about it in previous programs and what that movie experience is when we talk about um uh, the influences of thing not only on the remake but i think one of the best episodes of the x-files is also pretty much a, a, a remake of the thing where they where somehow somehow Mulder and scully are somehow out there in some arctic research area i think it's called ice I think that's, and there's also some sort of alien that it's invading and killing everybody. So it's a, it's a quite a, uh, a homage to. Uh, I mean, there, there were so many great scenes in this movie. I know one of my neighbors who was Nifter a few years ago, used to, one of his followers, mm -hmm. this was his favorite movie, The Thing. And I was always thinking, well, why, what, you know, that, I wouldn't say that's my favorite, even my favorite 50s <laughs> sci-fi, but Seeing it, I, I I have an appreciation, and there's certain scenes like when they, you know, they're not sure is this an airplane or is this, you know, uh, what is it? Did it? Is it from outer space? Is it from the Russians? Is it one of ours? Is it one of theirs? And then when they all gather around to, you know, see what is the shape of this thing, and they realize it's a circle, they're like, you know, they're so excited. We got one. It's a flying saucer. And another, you know, colorful character. In, in films in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, Yitzhak, act as very um, interesting and quick ways of doing exposition, right? You're at, a, you're at a, a newspaper, oh, the news is just coming in, oh, this is what it's about, right? They're able to move things along because of their attitude, because of what they're about, they're here to tell the story. Um, so I, I think it, 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 having a reporter up there uh, is a way for the reporter to ask the scientists what's going on. The reporter is able to see what the public would say. So having that character is really in a way... That. He doesn't do that in this movie. That's the type of thing you would see in, in other movies, and he does not do that in this movie. He is, you know, he's there, you know, almost a, a type of a foil, but also he's like, he's just in the way, and 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 he's also disappointed because they're told the story should not get out, but the story kind of gets out anyway. And so he's like, here he's expecting to be the one who's breaking this big story, and he's and he doesn't get that. And here he is right in the midst of it. And there's funny parts where like 
you know, they open the door and he just wants to get the, all he really wants to do is get the pictures. You know, that's, that's all he cares about is getting pictures. And at one point when they open the door and, and he's, and it's too quick, he's not able to get the picture. So then they're like, so the one soldier is like, well, you want me to open the door again? He's like, no. Um, people see it as a metaphor for uh, the distrust of, of communism. But this, now that that's not really such a, uh, a heavy issue, um, the film could really just be enjoyed as really a, a classic, as you're saying. Yeah, um, I mean, it, 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 the monster is almost secondary, and even and even the suspense is secondary. It's the the storytelling, and it, it captures you know, and and like because again, you don't see the monster, and and the uh, one story I remember uh, that that Bob Dorian told on AMC was that they had James Arnest made up in the, um, in the makeup for the monster. And he had to drive over to the studio and I guess someone was driving and he was in the passenger seat and it was, you know, two lanes on, on each side and they stopped at the red light and the woman looked over to the side and saw James Arnest in this, in this makeup. And apparently she fainted uh from seeing this this creature which again to us i i you know compare certainly compared to carpenters the thing it's nothing nothing special nothing it doesn't look hokey doesn't look stupid but doesn't look scary to me or anything but i guess in, the, in those days uh, a little bit different you know from a imagined monster uh who terrorized and took the blood out of its victims and was left alive in a way that could wreak havoc um, to another monster who in this film was left alive and did wreak havoc. And that's Adolf Hitler. What I'm speaking about is 1941's Manhunt with directed by that incredible uh, emigre from Germany, the Jewish, although he was raised Catholic, his mother was a Jew. And that's part of the reason he escaped from Germany. We're talking of, of course about talking of course about fritz lang fritz lang who made these silent classics like metropolis and m here he is uh, with a film that uh is i think overlooked most people see this film as a, a propaganda film but it, it's based on a, uh, a a a magazine story that later was a novel as novel a novel by someone called gregory household Talk about an interesting name for a writer. Gregory Household wrote a a a, a treatment in a magazine, which he uh, eventually turned into a book called Rogue Mail, and this was about a English big gamesman, a hunter who has decided he's going to go after this terrible dictator, and he's going to penetrate where this dictator lived. Now, when when Household wrote the book, he was afraid of backlash from Germany. But the uh, when Fritz Lang and his writers got a hold of this, they earmarked Hitler right away. And there's, uh, you you can see that they actually are in. Uh, they go to uh, a simulated version of where Hitler's uh, chalet was in the mountains, and Walter Pidgeon in his best role. I mean, we talked about Walter Pidgeon in Forbidden Planet, and I've seen him in other films. I, I generally consider him wooden and boring. He is fabulous in this film. 
there's a manic aspect of pigeon, but there's also a a, a stalwart uh, heroism of him, and also in a way a symbol of a, a certain wrongheadedness of what they considered manly English uh, bravado. Here he was was this uh, he was considered a world famous hunter. And he decided he was going to go after the biggest game of all, Hitler. And the film starts with the assass- what could have been the assassination of this man. And Fritz Lang uses newsreel footage expertly uh, uh, melded into the film because he's looking at him with his telescopic sights on his hunter rifle. And you know, you're watching it and you're saying, you know, this is like Inglorious Bastards. This is like, yes, kill him, right? <laughs> Everything will be over. But he doesn't have uh, Pigeon as the hunter, as the hunter doesn't have uh, ammunition. He just wanted to show that he could do it. Then he decides to put a bullet into the rifle. And at that minute, as he, as he uh, steadies his scope and has Hitler, Yamach in his sights, he is attacked by a German guard and is brought to uh, the chalet where he is, uh, he is uh, beaten and uh, tortured by, as you know, Yitzhak, my favorite villain, one of the great English actors who I don't think ever, ever played it wrong, George Sanders. <laughs> George Sanders plays a German, and again, he knew this film, the Germans speak German. The Nazis all speak in German. Uh, but of course, this is an Anglophile. This is a German who loves England. This is a German, uh, this, this, this colonel, this Nazi colonel, Keeve Smith, seems to maybe have had an English mother. They don't really explain why, when he switches from German to English, he talks like George Sanders. And he is blood-curdling in his villainy because he knows exactly who this fellow is. And what he wants is not his death. He actually appreciates uh, this fellow. He appreciates Thorndike, is what his name is, the hunter. He appreciates him. He actually has followed his exploits. But he says he wants him to sign a document that he was an agent from the English to assassinate Hitler, and they'll let him go. They'll send him back to England free, but it'll be in the world stage that England wanted to assassinate an elected dictator who became dictator of Germany. And of course, he refuses to do that. In fact, he denies that he wanted to kill Hitler. He says he wanted to prove that he could do it. It was an exercise in what he calls of of, of being able to achieve. He wasn't going to kill him. It was a sport. He wanted to show that he, to prove to himself that he could break into the most heavily guarded uh, fortress in the world and go after the most dangerous game that there is, man, and the most dangerous human being on the planet. A fascinating idea. And if, if a household came up with it, or Fritz Lang came up with it, that's itself worth it, just to, just to hear about this idea. Now, of course, Daryl Zanuck and the uh, production uh, crew over there 
the people that were behind the film did not want to show the Nazis actually torturing a Walter Pigeon. So you see it off screen and you can hear him being beaten. You can see him afterwards. His face is bloodied. Um, and again, why the Nazis just don't kill him and put a bullet in his head, I don't know. But they, for propaganda purposes, they decide that they are going to um, uh, throw him off the cliff as if uh, either he committed suicide or something, uh, and that they could still get something out of it that he that he was trying to kill the Fuhrer, and he just when he when he failed, he decided to kill himself. Anyway, it turns out that when they throw him over the cliff, um, his knapsack saves him, and he's able to escape using his wiles. And part of what the film indicates is that Thorndike, and this is why it's called Manhunt because they're after him is not just a hunter who knows how to stalk game, but he knows how to survive. Every hunter can become the hunted. Every, and I think that's part of the theme of the film. He becomes the hunted, although he was the greatest hunter and he knew how to go after the most dangerous beast. Now he knows how to survive. He knows how to camouflage himself. He knows how to hide. And he is helped in his escape to get back to England by uh, a young boy played by Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell, this was the first film that he made after he uh, uh, escaped from England. You know, Roddy McDowell, of course, was in London when the Blitz occurred, and he was able to be taken out of, of England and came to the United States. And of course, uh, had a wonderful career as a child who uh, becomes a stowaway on a Danish ship, and he's the cabin boy, is from England. And of course, he's going to help him uh, survive and hide him. Um, when Thorndike arrives in England, uh, he he's the Nazis are on his trail. In fact, the Nazis have picked up his passport and his jacket, and they've enclosed and given the passport to one of their assassins. And their assassin is played by the most American actor you could think about, John Carradine. John Carradine plays, uh, the, as we know, was, of course, the reverend in The Grapes of Wrath uh, in the same year. John Carradine, this tall, gaunt, ghostly figure, plays this assassin who they call Mr. Jones in the in the credits. And he is the one who is realizes that he's got to hunt and lead the hunt against uh, and to find Thorndike, to find Walter Pigeon. And he, uh, again, Fritz Lang, using the techniques that made him such a, a, a master of silent film, the cinematography, the, the, sh the, the way he shoots Carradine in long shot, the menace that he has, uh, the menace that he projects is palpable. Uh, suffice to say that a pigeon is running around London. Um, the Nazis are after him. Eventually, uh, uh, Keith Smith, Sanders' villainous role, is, is using all diplomatic uh, options. And part of what the film shows you is that the Germans, right before the war, had a tremendous amount of influence in England. And that even though Thorndike is actually the brother of one of the lords, 
and should be protected will be extradited because of the appeasement policy that England had with Germany at the time. And the, also that not only is John Carradine there, but there are policemen who are actually secret Nazis and a number of other people running around, meaning there's all these Nazi cells operating uh, freely in England in the time right before the war. And, and this, of course, is a criticism of that whole attitude it shows again that the that the leaders of the country, uh, even though they realized that they were dealing with a madman, someone who was very open about his intentions, uh, were wanting to to keep this person in power or, or not taking the aggressive steps that were necessary. So the film, although it was made in 1941, in order Fritz Lang and others, it was made in order to encourage. Uh, America to break its isolationist stance and to join the war effort, uh, it's also a critique of what was many people's positions pre the war. Um, and it exposes really the, 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 the banality of evil that was inherent in the British diplomats. And I think this is a, a very telling and important point that Fritz Lang is making. Now, of course, the, the, the same way Roddy McDowell, this little waif, is able to uh, help him survive, the other uh, person who helps him survive is a whore, <laughs> a, a call girl played by Joan Bennett. Joan Bennett, of course, is a famous American actress. Yitzchak, of course, you know her as, uh, as, as I believe, the mistress of Dark. And Joan Bennett, of course, had a very uh, long career uh, in television and the movies. And in the, in the 1930s and 40s, she usually played some sort of, um, you know, if not a femme fatale, but some sort of, um, you know, uh, I would say a, 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 a spirit of Eros. And in this film, uh, she is able to uh, help him survive. She hides him. She brings him over to her to his brother. And what many people feel is the weakest part of the film. There's some sort of she has tremendous romantic feelings for him, even though, you know, because he's a real gentleman. Uh, she's been dealing with a lot of phony gentlemen. She's been dealing with a lot of wealthy people who have only visited her uh, for what she's able to provide. And this is a very noble uh, person who, who has the best of England about him. And she's going to be like the whore with a heart of gold. She's going to help him. She doesn't want any of his money. And she somehow follows him and tries to. And there's a, a great scene uh, where uh, in the in the underground, which Fritz Lang and his uh, production crew were able to design a, a a a pretty wonderful facsimile of what it was like in the underground in London, and what it was like when somebody is 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 being chased on a, a on a subway train. Um, it was very very well done. Uh, including a, a very a scary situation where uh, he's being hunted in the subway tracks itself, which is somewhat similar to what Fritz Lang did in M. Um, I don't want to spoil too much from it, but I will tell you that the end of the film uh, has a standoff finally between Pigeon and Sanders. And it happens in a uh, a place that, that Thorndike pigeon has developed a, a a a place where he's literally holed up, 
and um, and the the game of wits that ensues between them, um, the dialogue, the way that at, at the end of the film, and this is not really much of a spoiler, that Thorndike basically admits to Keith Smith that he did want to kill Hitler. And even though he told himself he didn't, when he did put that bullet in, he really thought that he would kill him and that he recognized, even though he didn't want to say it, just like England didn't want to say it, that that this man was terrible. This man was the root of, of evil. This man would bring out all the worst tendencies in human beings. Um, and that's part of the reason why he refuses to save his life, uh, to sign the confession. Um, it, 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 it is it, in many ways. I think we have a tendency to look at films that have an obvious intent, and we try to dismiss their artistic value. Yes, this was meant to push Americans to love what England were doing, to recognize what Hitler was about, and to join the war effort. But because of that, people see it as prop was moved by his own hatred and by what Goebbels and others had done to eviscerate his career doesn't really diminish what he was trying, the statements he was trying to make. Now, the people give a lot more credence to one of Fritz Lang's other films, which is called Fury, which has to do, of course, with mob violence um, and, and as I mentioned this, I think, in, in a discussion with you earlier, uh, that was a film with Spencer Tracy, where he um, is uh, accused of being a murderer, and he's killed by a mob, but not really killed because he escapes, and then he wants to get his revenge. So that film, which also has a very much a uh, a, a pedagogic purpose, for some reason, you know, is not as dismissed where I think this film is actually its superior film in terms of cinematography. I think uh, as great, as much as I love Spencer Tracy in that role, um, I think that um, uh, Manhunt really in the, in a way uh, it, it can take us back to a, a place uh, right before the war and also really contemplate something incredible, which is, if Hitler would have been assassinated, would was he the lightning rod? Would there would there have been someone to take his place? It, 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 it I think lends itself to a fascinating discussion. I don't know again if we if we compare the thing <laughs> to Hitler, right? But the point is they were able using your science, Yitzhak, to be able to reduce him to 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 a vegeta to a little vegetable that they were going they were going to cook on the frying pan. Um, would that bullet have changed things? Or it was it possible that you know, once Hitler had stirred up, perhaps there would have been Goering, there would have been others that would have taken up the mantle and 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 would have run with it. Maybe the concentration camps wouldn't have been as as vicious. Maybe there wouldn't have been this 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 complete total desire to annihilate the Jews. But I think we as rabbis and we as Jews have to think about things in this in this way. This monster that arose, this icon um, that that really, you know, and again in 1941 we didn't even know the extent, and, and, and so seeing it again, 
um, to me was 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 very powerful. It, it, it really stirred in myself the idea of hmm, had he had he had he been assassinated, and of course there were actual um, Allied plans to assassinate Hitler afterwards. Clearly, they thought that if they cut the head off, um, you know, calmer uh, people would, would would rule. We know that um, Martin Bormann, even among the Germans, among the Nazis themselves, was behind the plot when they realized how the war was going to end in defeat. Martin Bormann and others wanted to assassinate Hitler, and of course, they were they were discovered. But like I said, I think it's a um, it is a uh, it's worthwhile just for the beauty of of Lang's vision of how he gives you this this dark and terrible place, this dark and terrible London, this dark and terrible London underground. And um, no clay pigeon indeed is is Walter. So that's it, my friends. We hope that he wasn't uh, pigeonholed. He was yes, he was that he was that bitch. Oh yes. All right. Watch your step on the way out, my friends. We'll catch you next time. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 